It's like digging your own grave with a backhoe. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Over 1,000 organizations trust Code Climate to help improve quality and security in their Ruby apps. Get 50% off your first three months for being a Rogues listener by starting a free trial this week. Go to rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 136 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Katrina Owen. Good morning. Josh Susser. Uh, Good morning from San Francisco, where it's 85 degrees out today. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm just going to give you a quick reminder. You've got two and a half weeks to get the one-third off on Rails Ramp Up if you want to sign up. Um, We also have a special guest this week, and that's Stephen Proctor. Howdy from Dallas-Fort Worth. You want to introduce yourself, Stephen? Yeah, I'm a Ruby immigrant. I have been spending most of my time in .NET up until about the past year when I got laid off. Sent an email out to the Ruby user groups in the area and got picked up from someone taking a chance of someone on someone who's got development but has only played with Ruby. So I'm currently at Simplify and doing Ruby and some Erlang here as well. Cool. Very nice. So before we get going too far, we have some sad news. Katrina, do you want to give us our sad news? All right. The sad news is that I am retiring. Oh, that is. Do I need to uh-huh. expand? She, she, expand she hit that? the lottery. She no longer has to work. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I've had I've had a year as a panelist on the Rogues, and it's been a fantastic year. And I'm going to take some time off. Uh, where I'm talking less and doing more is basically the the long and short of it. Deliberate practice. Yeah, deliberate practice, writing code, not so much speaking at conferences and being on podcasts. I hear you. Yeah. For sure. Well, we are absolutely going to miss you. Won't be the same around here without you. That's I'm right. not going to cry on the show, I promise. <laughs> and, <come laughs> and on behalf of listeners, <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll all miss you as well. And come back for an episode. Oh, thank you. you want. Yep. I will invite me to talk about exorcism, and I will not shut up. I will. Do that. <laughs> I will. Yeah, I think it's about time we had a an episode on exorcism. No yep. kidding. Uh, actually, the I listened to the Lucas one because I ended up missing that week, and uh, that is kind of a show about exorcism in large. Yeah. But we can definitely <laughs> yeah. say more. Yeah, I'll bring some holy water and incense. We'll be good. Cool, we're all set. So let's talk about product. Let's do it. Yeah, so to give a little bit of background, we did an episode, I think it was 122? 121? 121, I believe. And uh, we had Adam Keyes on, and we talked about product work versus contract work. And Stephen left a pretty interesting comment on 
that uh, episode, and so uh, I invited him back to come and say his piece about why product work doesn't, you know, I was going to say doesn't suck, but I've I've had some decent jobs in my day, so yeah. But anyway, so you want to fill us in a little bit on your background there so that we can get an idea of where you're coming from and talk about this? Yeah, so as I mentioned uh, kind of in the intro, I've got a background doing .NET uh, with Microsoft Technologies, some Java before that, and a little bit with uh, some internships and as a small transition between a group between jobs inside the same company was with one of those groups for 10 years almost uh same number same team same products it was a product suite doing web application development for food and beverage industry so we had a bunch of different stacks so with the group that size and we got up to about maybe 14 people and so i think part of that part of my questions came down to the difference between the Ruby culture and environment, and then some of the more enterprisey styles environments, as well as get, kind of getting in with the term of the tenure that people have on projects, whether it's the consultant for three months or closer to the long, the more, I guess, average term of about two years between people jumping through jobs or projects. And then kind of that perspective from someone who's been doing it for, who was on the same team working on the same products for almost 10 years. Yeah, I think Adam brought up some of that, that he felt being in the same position over a long period of time changed how he viewed things and his commitment to them and stuff like that. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really noticed was going through that that 10 years uh, and you guys touched on a little bit on the flip side of it as well. Uh, but going through 10 years of it, you kind of tend to know all those little inconsequential decisions or that seem inconsequential at the time and realize how big of a bundle that those things add up over the years in that. And I believe the consultants have a great opportunity when you're coming into that thing, as you guys kind of talked about. I think I think you mentioned it, James, where you talked about how you love coming to a new project and bringing a fresh perspective. And I think that's one of those balances that probably don't happen enough on the teams. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's advantages both ways. You know, if you're the new person coming in, then uh, you don't have the baggage that other people have. You know, the oh, we do it this way, you know, all the time, blah, 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 you know, because I don't remember it's lost in the annals of history, right? Uh, whereas the new person's like, but what if we did it this way, <laughs> you know? But then the team has the advantage of they've made a lot of those mistakes 10 times and they remember, you know, why they turned out not to be great ideas and stuff like that. So I think it cuts both ways, right? Yeah, one of my favorite stories I remember seeing at one of the previous jobs about the, why do we do it this way? Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the uh, the anecdote of the five gorillas in a cage with the bananas hanging down and the ladder. The basic premise is they put five gorillas in a cage w- with bananas hanging down where they could get to the ladder and grab them. But any time that one of them would do it, they would send the fire hose at that gorilla and the rest of the gorillas and just like hose them down. And over time, they would replace one gorilla in one at a time. And then the gorillas would hold them back so they wouldn't get sprayed down because they get sprayed down too if the new gorilla went for 
the bananas. And then they notice that after every time of doing that, after they've completely recycled out all the old gorillas, that any time they'd cycle out another gorilla, they were still exhibiting that behavior, even though none of those gorillas had gotten sprayed down originally. That's interesting. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I thought that was the, kind of the perfect anecdote for that kind of, why do we do that this way? Right. So you're saying that uh, gorillas can cargo cult too? <laughs> <laughs> they may even be better at it than us, which is... <laughs> Which I don't know yeah. if that's a plus or, or a minus. So, so have you seen something like that happen on projects at work where the team is still following some ancient practices that no one really understands anymore and they may or may not be helping? Yeah, I've seen it, and I've seen it kind of even where we do know why and we've got the history, but we still do it. And I think part of that, that history was it felt too painful to change. And it's like, well, okay, I don't know that we can ever spend the time doing this. We've kind of stuck ourselves in the corner, even though this isn't a place we want to be at. And it's trying to get that motivation. And I think until you've been there for a long time, or you've gone through a bunch of projects, you may come into a bunch of projects where it's that and be the repair guy. You don't necessarily learn the value of those lessons, which I think if you're a consultant, I'm get, I would assume that as you guys go through a number of things, you guys can pick up lessons being the repair person that you might not have gotten if you're just coming in as the first-time do-it-yourself consultant. Is that roughly a valid statement? Sure, I would say I've learned a lot of things. I mean, I think even just programming in general, a lot of times I see a chunk of code and I'm like, oh, I can replace that with something much simpler or whatever, and then I I write the thing, and, and it gives me a whole new appreciation for why it was the way it was, right, sometimes. Yeah, one of the th- I guess it was more of the, I didn't know how much you guys have found yourself learning from calling in to be be worked on for repair projects. Because as, as you become someone in a, I've noticed from me and my worker, co-workers, although it's a smaller sample size, was we kind of noticed the value of those decisions after you had been in that code base long time, a long time of, wow, okay, yeah, solid principles really do matter because all these times we kind of thought they weren't going to be that big of a deal, they snowball and become a nice big bundle of a mess. And and what do you think that's related to? I mean, is like team composition, you got permanent employees who've been on the project for 10 years, consultants who drop in. Well, I think that's just one of those, and you start out with a younger team as well, because this was this group was a startup, so everybody was in their, I think almost everybody was in their 20s at that point. And some of them, I know I got in that job right out of college, and I did have some good, men- and I had some good mentors, but they were still 25 or 27 with some good experience under them, but I think it's one of those you have to be bitten by it before you really understand the appreciation. Sure, I think there's a lot of problems that until you feel them, you you don't really believe them. Yeah, as as good as we are with language, yeah, <laughs> some I, things you got some things you got to see for yourself. Yeah, it's hard to make people appreciate the value of having. You know, it, it's that you can throw together some code, you know, and it works and it's fine, and 
you, you can probably change it up to a point, you know, and then there's some point where if, if it's designed poorly, you know, that the, the weight of those changes eventually becomes crippling <laughs> at some point, you know, and yeah. it's whether or not you hit that point. And so a lot of people are, you know, just with a lot of experience are just programmed to make certain decisions earlier on so that they can try to push that pain as far away as possible, give themselves more breathing room. But I think there's situations, aren't there, where like um, projects get into this kind of mess and then they bring on consultants that have a lot of experience with the goal of training the team up to, you know, recognize these issues and how they got there and improve the thing over time. That happens, right? Yeah, and I think that's one of the big things that, sadly, we don't see enough with with consultants. And I don't know that it's from lack of effort by consultants, but maybe more the people that bring them in as a whole. Well, they'll bring in either a consulting firm or a couple of independent contractors or freelancers and bring them in and try to then assign them work instead of assigning them as a coach and a mentor. And then it becomes a, we're bringing them in to get this work done, which then becomes a handoff versus helping to dig the team out of the mess that they're in, not only with code, but with education. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we talked a bit, a bit with Adam about the non-technical things that consultants can help with on, on projects, you know, some of the team dynamics and teaching agile skills, project management, uh, things like that. But I don't think we got into the, you know, we've, we've been talking about how there's all of this accumulated sort of institutional memory on a team. And they know all the, all the decisions that went, all the reasons why things were decided the way they were five or ten years ago. Oh, we got to do it that way because of X. And I think that there's also some institutional memory on the team of how to deal with people. You know, if you've been working with people on a team for five or ten years, you probably know how each other work pretty well. And some of those things are functional and some of those things are dysfunctional. Everybody you work with, they got their good points and their bad points. And a lot of what goes on on a team is figuring out how to work together well as a team and that you bring in a consultant and they don't have all of that knowledge of, oh, well, I've been working with, you know, Frank for 10 years and, you know, you just got to talk to him this way if you want to get anything out of him. So yeah, I, I, can, I can definitely see that. I think the other thing that happens is that they get pulled in when the dysfunction starts to make a peak, which I think probably would test the contractors even more so than had they been brought in at more of a stable time. So now the contractors are essentially thrown into the fire because you're pulled in when deadlines are being made or things are switching or the team's flailing and there's a lot of conflict. Like, you're pulled in at the worst times of the project, right? Yeah. And that can also create tension between, like, I think the full-timers and the and the contractors, right? Because why do we need them now, right, kind of thing? Yeah, or, well, they're bringing them in, and we've been saying this for 10 years, but or we've been saying this for two years, but then they come in, and they can 
get the ear of the pro- of the person who can make the decisions because it's hit the proverbial fan, and they're probably three. My rough understanding is probably three to six times more expensive than someone that they would hire to do the same job as a full-time employee. And so there's the, well, we're paying them a lot more as well. So so that combination kind of plays with the uh, managerial aspect and influence, it, would, it seems. Yeah, I've seen that a few times. I've also seen it with um, new full-time employees that get hired. They come in and they, you know, they somehow get the ear of whoever makes the decisions and kind of makes that happen. Um, and in my experience, a lot of times it's because these people have just done the sales job to the manager as to why they should be hired. You know, the consultant has to do it in order to get the job and get paid. And the the new employee is the same kind of thing. You know, they came in and they, they basically had to sell themselves or sell the manager on hiring them. And then they could come in and say, well, I've had this expertise and I see that there's this pain. And for some reason... Yeah, it it does. They get a little bit more credibility in that space than somebody who's been there for uh, a few years and has been saying the same thing. Yeah, and sadly, I think the contractor gets a little bit of the worse rap than the person who's been hired on as a full-time employee. I think part of that because is we know that the full-time employee is going to be sticking around or more likely to stick around. They're kind of more probably more invested in the success of the company than the contractor would be if they're just coming in for a three three to six month stint type of thing. Sadly, there may not be as much hostility or enragement over the new full-time employee that's able to get that versus the contractor. Is that something you guys have kind of noticed? I think it depends on the team. Yeah. So a, a lot of these things that we're discussing here um, can come down to the fact that managers don't know how to manage their teams. And sometimes they bring in consultants to help fix the problems they've created. Yeah. The the other thing is is that I mean I've seen I've seen consultants come into a team of full time employees and be treated like outsiders. And I've seen consultants come in to a team and be treated like the person who's gonna solve all the problems. And so it, it really just depends on the team's approach and what their expectations are. If the team doesn't see the need for the con- consultant or the contractor then yeah, I, I can definitely see where you know they're like, well, what do we need him for? He's you know, it's not going to really make a difference. And you know, how is it that he can say what we've been saying for the last three years and and get it done? Um, and then other folks see it as okay, well, you know, obviously he's coming in, he's saying the right things, and we're we're making headway. And yeah, yeah. I, I've seen so, it work so, both so ways. This, this is this is what gets talked about all the time when we talk about you know product, you know, full-time employees versus consultants. It's all, it's always that, that divide and, and that dynamic. But the underlying dynamic is that the, the way the team's being run or managed isn't working. And bringing in a consultant is just one thing that management can do when they're stuck. But there's a lot of other things that they do. And I think much of the time bringing in consultants is just management doesn't know what to do anymore. And they just want somebody to help. But that that doesn't mean that that's the only fix. And you know, a good functional, you know, well, you know, like well functioning, healthy product team can go for years and years and years and not need consultants to come in. Yeah, and I, it also seems as the relatively 
new person to Ruby that the Ruby cultures and take on consultancy is drastically different than things that I've seen with more enterprise companies. Use an example, one of the we got acquired twice and the second company is a big giant monolithic company whose name everybody would know but I would I'm will refrain from stating. But Yeah, we don't want to lose our family friendly rating. Yeah. <laughs> but as we got as we got acquired by them, I would not be it was not unusual to hear about projects that were five or ten year implementation projects in which they would consult out to these other companies to get the software up and running. Whereas Ruby, you hear a lot more about the thought bots, the pivotals. I just won't blink on Chad Fowler's company that was acquired by Living Schultzel. You get the eighth lights, which seem to be more contractor and consultancy friendly. I'm wondering if that's kind of, is that due to the kind of glut of people that are in the Ruby, where Ruby isn't the mainstream language, so it becomes more friendly to contractors? I think some of it has to do with the realities of what the companies are like, how they're structured and funded, and that the uh, the economics of hiring a full-time employee when you're a small, agile startup are really different from the economics of bringing in temporary help. And a, a lot of what we see Ruby used for, it, or at least a couple years ago, as the Ruby culture was expanding and developing, is we had a lot of startups using Ruby to do websites. And that was like a huge part of the Ruby culture that was developing. And a lot of those startups were built around, okay, we're going to uh, you know, use firms like Pivotal or Hashrocket to help us build our product. And, you know, or we're going to bring in you know, other consultants who are familiar with this technology that we're just learning. So I think there was just so much in the, in the way the companies were developing. It wasn't necessarily that, they were, that they, it was the Ruby technology. It was the culture of the Ruby ecosystem that led yeah, us I guess to, that- to be all consultant. Focus. I guess that's where I was getting at is it seems like the Ruby culture is a lot more consultant friendly where you could even go off and possibly freelance in your free time in the evenings as opposed yeah, to some of these other companies that I've seen. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that happens when you have, you know, like Ruby developers are still a scarce resource. You know, there's much more demand for good Ruby developers than there are good Ruby developers to be had. So I think that going out and being a consultant is much easier in that environment. So we, you know, as long as there's going to be, you know, you know, not enough Ruby developers to go around, you're going to be able to go out there and be a consultant. It's going to be really straightforward to do that. It's not going to be like you have to spend all your time doing business development and trying to find a client. Right. Whereas some other languages, like I, I I don't have experience, but I've heard that .NET, you know, there's a lot of programmers to go around. You know, so that makes a different environment. Yeah, one other thing that I've seen as well with a lot of my clients is that they are really interested in getting things out there quickly. And so with a lot of these companies like Pivotal Labs and, and Hashrocket, you know, they can commit as many resources as they need to meet those deadlines. And the other thing is, is that a lot of the people who are starting these companies don't necessarily have the technical background to be able to talk to somebody and know whether or not they're the right fit for what they're trying to do. And so I've also seen arrangements where some of these companies like Pivotal Labs or some of the, you know, whoever, they not only start building the product, but they also start helping this company find people who can eventually take it on long term. 
and so there you know there's there's a lot of space for that where you know people just need the expertise and need a quick ramp up and and they get it from these companies yeah and i think that's part of the difference of what i've seen where i was kind of coming from when i made those comments was generally see the bigger consultancy firms that are the size of thoughtworks not saying thoughtworks is one of them but the bigger where they have different cities and different things or different locate different headquarters for different cities spread around able to throw out a number of people and the microsoft community while i love some of the languages they still have a weird enterprisey feel and that's one of the things i love about the ruby community is the smaller feel with the uh things like open source and i don't know how much of that kind of plays into that mindset of well we need to get a lot of these contractors in because there's the fear of open source so they have to develop all these products themselves uh, i don't know if that makes a difference on having to pull in that workforce where they're done like that so now you pull in this big consultancy firm to do a lot of your work to go create this part of a product which in ruby you could find as a simple gem that you can pull in. What about, I've heard an idea past that programmers, as they stay with a project over time, they become less sensitive to the pains that are in the code and, you know, less aware of them, and thus that makes them less able to react to them and, and make better design decisions. And so it's been suggested that it could even be a valuable thing to even on a long-term project, rotating people around where they don't spend more than, say, two years or whatever, working on any given part of it uh, to keep shifting them through and, and keep those ideas fresh. What do we think about that as a strategy? I think that's true up until a certain point, and then once you've been there a while, you start to get another aha moment. I think there's a valley somewhere in the middle at which you start seeing really low return. So you see really high return on those things when you're just starting, and then you start to taper off. And then I think as you start being on there longer, you start to notice other things that have happened because you've been dealing with the pain so frequently. You might not be able to place your finger on what it is, but I think there may be kind of a weird valley there into if you've only been there for a while, you're really productive. Or once you've been there a long time, you start becoming really productive. But once you're in that little middle area, you've kind of become pain and uh, don't quite notice it as much. So it's sort of like being a teenager. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's the awkward growing page st pain uh, stage of yeah. your employment. I think that Actually, makes sense. Like on projects I've been on for a really long time, I'll notice that you know I'll I'll slip into some kind of rhythm, but then I'll find something usually external that inspires me in some way, and then will get me to come back and take a fresh look at the project that I'm on and, and the parts of it I've gotten used to and be like, oh, why is that that way? That's dumb. If I re-architect that, I can make a lot of things easier, you know, or whatever. Yeah, I, I would say that probably because consultants change a little more often than the project team, they are 
not immune, but they're a little less likely to get burnt out than the people who've been working on the same project for four years or so. Yeah, and I then will, you. I will tell you that's one of my major motivations for being a consultant. It's just that, like, it never really bothers me if I'm not super deeply connected with the specific thing that the app I'm working on now does because I know uh, over time that will change, you know. But uh, the clients I tend to stick with for long periods of time are ones that have, you know, kind of a broad scope and are solving lots of different problems so that it keeps me interested, you know, and I don't get stuck in a rut. I get worried that, you know, just working on one site, you know, over and over again, I, I would burnout, I feel like. Yeah, and I think that's a hard thing to do. I found that's a very hard thing to do as a uh, full-time employee is you tend to get pigeonholed. So to try and work to not get stuck in a rut takes a lot of effort. Whereas if you're moving, even if you're full-time, but moving in between projects, you're less likely to be said, oh, you're the guy for this. Uh, we've got another bug come up. We need you to go back here and do this. We need to do this. We need you to do that versus being able to try out new technologies. Ruby, again, seems a little more welcoming in trying out new technologies as opposed to some of the other environments that I have seen. And so to help keep that rut from necessarily being dug into as much. Now, that said, I, I think it was mainly Adam on that episode that changed my mind about thinking about some of that in that, you know, if you have a company like uh, Living Social, which Adam works for, you know, it, what we see on the outside is that they have a daily coupon deal website, right? Uh, but that's obviously a very shallow description of what they do all day, right? They have teams that work on various parts. I'm sure they have tons of internal tooling with, you know, various systems for, you know, this and that, and they're developing other things and trying them and stuff. And so that said, I think now I understand how people in those longer term positions get that variety that I crave. Yeah, if you've got a bigger company like that as well, where it's easier to move around. I absolutely agree. And that's why I was like, it's almost a project-level scope versus a company scope. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I could see that really would pay off for somebody that's either on a project long-term or with a company long-term is that you you really are there long enough to make a dent. Um, I mean, I, I go in as a consultant, and I'll work on something. I worked on one project for a year. Uh, where I was consulting on it, and you know, I, I got things, you know, up to up to where the guy wanted it. But a lot of times, I feel like I'm in and out before I can really, you know, make some of the meaningful changes that I want to make. And I can see where if you know, if you find fulfillment in that kind of thing, where it's I can influence the organization, I can influence this project. Well, you're on it for two or three years. You know, you really can make a big difference as to how it's run and what it's about. I do think you get to see that more. I would say good consultants, even if they're only there for three or six months, have that effect. The catch is they probably don't necessarily see the effect because it takes a little longer to show through, especially after they've left. So unless you're keeping in contact with some of those mm -hmm. people you've worked with, you may not be able to say that. Yeah, well, or You may not be able to see the effect that you had until you 
touch back base with some of the people you worked with? Well, I've also worked with a few um, small startups that, you know, it seemed like they made forward progress while I was there. And then in spite of any training or help that I gave them, they didn't make much forward progress after I left. And, you know, if I had been there for two or three times as long, I think I could have made more of a difference. That's a common problem in uh, teaching chess. We, I, I've actually, like, taught chess lessons to students, and then they're analyzing the board, and they explain to me out loud the thinking of what they should be doing right now. And then they reach down and make a move that does none of those things. It's a, <laughs> it's a strange mental block we have, you know, between, you know, being able to know the rules and, and apply them or something. You know, it's a, it's a very funny thing. It's, everybody makes that mistake, I think. I think that comes back to kind of Josh's great metaphor of being a teenager. I think you have the teenager cycle in your development life cycle, but I think you also have those little slumps at, for any position you're on. It's just depending on how long you're there and how much do you notice it. I personally appreciate the value of, of the person that's been there a long time in the area of domain knowledge. That's the one thing, in my opinion, that it's really hard for the consultant to compete with because... So like on my current project, I am a consultant, but the person I work most directly for, they've been doing this for many, many, many years. And so it's really funny when they ask for something from me, because he will often tell me, you know, here's what we could use, and I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but if you're like me, your first instinct is going to be to go this way, and I just want to warn you... Here's the problems you're going to run into if you try that, you know, which is like super great because it keeps me from stepping in a lot of potholes. Yeah, I think the domain knowledge, as, and I think that's part of that growing out of it and understanding it is as you're there longer, you start to get that better domain knowledge and know here's the traps and here's the pitfalls and pratfalls and everything else. I do think the good consultant, as you say, can come in and say, well, is that is that really a trap or is that just kind of the way you've always done it and you've become immune to it? So do we take five hours and go clean this part up and make a huge impact type of thing? What do we feel about the ability of the consultant to change the culture? Like I had a discussion recently about a board that runs a company that, you know, doesn't have a very positive view of parents for example. And so, you know, they, they just see it as a numbers game. And so from their point of view, you know, if I assign two programmers to some task, that means it costs twice as much and, and I get half as much done, right? Because I can split them up and have them doing two different things. Whereas I think as an industry, we mostly know that's pretty false, <laughs> you know? And so I, I was talking about the the idea of bringing in a consultant who is kind of a pairing expert, right? To show the value of, uh, like one thing where I think it could really help this particular company is that, uh, they, the system they have is very big, lots of pieces, lots of moving parts. And so what you have is particular knowledge ends up in one person's head. 
uh, because they work on that particular part and they haven't touched the other parts recently slash at all. And so it's hard to spread that knowledge around, which then means when you've got some blocker issue somewhere, either A, somebody who really doesn't have that knowledge has to go in there and see if they can puzzle it all out, or B, you've got to wait on that particular person to become available with recycles again. And I, I argued the value of pairing in spreading that knowledge around, right, and uh, putting it in different people so that then you could more easily respond to things as they come up. And this is one case where I feel like consulting could change the culture of that group for the better. I think one of the really difficult things with changing the culture is that nobody likes a revolution. And so if you come in and you dictate changes, the culture is not going to change. Whoever, you know, they might make some changes for a short while, but then as soon as the person is no longer there to dictate the behavior, everyone will revert. Whereas someone who's really good at affecting culture will come in and ask challenging questions that have people um, think deeply about why they choose to do different things or debate deeper in underlying issues and, and perhaps force people to go find facts to back up their opinions. And, and that's a really hard thing to do. So I've, I've been thinking about these, uh, these models of consulting relationships in uh, sort of archetypes of fictional characters. And a, a lot of what I hear is like the, there's sort of the music man model of the consultant. You know, you, you have the guy who just like comes to town and is selling some, you know, flavor of snake oil and is going to come change your culture and, you know, make everyone magically able to play musical instruments. And, you know, everybody's seen that or at least you know, heard uh, firsthand of someone who's had to deal with that. Uh, but And then there's, like, the kung fu model of, you know, Kwai Chang King quietly wanders into town, sees something that needs fixing, and does his best to fix it, and in doing so provides a model that everyone in town uh, can, you know, learn about doing the right thing. Right? You know, you get, we got these little morality plays all the time. And then you have, like, the A-team versus the Magnificent Seven. Huh. Yeah, the... <laughs> Yeah, the A-team is the, the team that already exists, and they'll just come in and fix your problem, you know, no matter the collateral damage. And then you have the Magnificent Seven, who is the custom-assembled team, who's going to come in and solve your problem, because they're just the right people for it. So, and awesome. I, I, Are we starting the Programming Tropes website right now? <laughs> <laughs> works for me. I mean, that, that's just what I came up with in the last minute. So, <laughs> I love it. It's great. The, yeah, but but I wonder if it's if it's uh, like useful to characterize stuff that way. You know, I had I had fun doing it, but I don't know how useful it is. I've definitely seen those things, and I think Katrina's real right on about the you know how how hard it is to change culture, and and actually uh, that exact case was kind of thrown back at me in the scenario I was describing. I think you have to be kind of more subversive than that, you know, in some ways to see the value of it. You have to you know, bring in the pairing person, do a little pairing, and then somehow you have to make the others recognize the value of that. <laughs> you know, the, look, isn't this great? We actually both know this part now, and we could both change it, or, you know, whatever. We, we have to find some way of spreading that word, which is, I, I admit, very difficult. And from the other side, the I think the subversive is needed due to the fact of 
if they're pulling you in and expecting you to program, I've seen too many times where they silo off the contractors. Do not disturb them. They are highly valuable. They are being paid an exorbitant amount of money. So why are you sitting there distracting them? Uh, <laughs> like, do, do they need to go to the meeting? No, they're the contractors. We want them busy working. But yeah. you guys have to come to this meeting. Whereas if you're more subversive, it may be more of the, well, can you work, work me? You've had the domain knowledge. Why don't you work me through this knowledge versus not only is he going to do it, I'm going to do the same job as James. So wait, we're now paying a contractor and a regular employee to do the same job. But that gets back to what you were talking about earlier, the value of like contractors as like mentors and educators and stuff. Something like pairing especially, you know, it can be a great opportunity for that exchange of ideas to happen, right? Yeah, I think the trick is trying to get it done without going into that mindset with management and other people who are paying the bills of getting the same argument of, well, now we have two people doing the same thing, but one of them is a contractor, which is even more expensive, right. even though that's why you brought the contractor in. Right, or we don't want the contractor teaching that person because uh, the contractor costs a lot of money. We'll have our normal person teach that person, but then, you know, that exchange of ideas may not be happening as well. All right, well, it's been a pretty good conversation. Sounds like uh, we're kind of uh, winding down. Should we get into the picks? Sure. Sounds good. Do it. All right. Well, Katrina, since we're going to miss you terribly, why don't you go first? I have so many picks. I'm only going to pick three, though. I've been <laughs> saving them. You, uh, you, K- Katrina, you can have my pick slots this week. Explosion. Go for Aww. it. Yeah, do <laughs> it. Explosion. Okay. So the first pick is Omakasa Charity. Teresa Preston Werner started a company specifically addressing the problem with tech people who who have a lot of money but don't give to charity because so many charities are just really bad at spending the money well. You never know where it goes. You you hear about it on the news later that it was actually going to pay for um, expensive meals for very important people. And so the what Teresa did is um, start a company where she and her team do all of the uh, research about which charities they think are good charities to to give to. And what you do is you just give Omakasa Charity 10 or 25 or $50 a month, and they give your money to whoever they choose. And their, their metrics are, they're very specific, they're very metric driven, and they choose, they're very specific about choosing small, goal-based, transparent, comprehensive charities and, and so they make sure that your money goes to a good place. And Omakasa Charity is also very transparent about where the money is going. Um, so, Katrina, yeah. I have two quick questions on that. One, do you still get the tax write-off for making the donation through them? You know what? I don't know. I'm assuming yes, but uh, don't quote me on it. Okay. And, and then the second question um, is, d- does this insulate you from getting all of the requests for more donations? I that know, you, right? <laughs> from the, from the oh, charities. Uh, if it does, that's like even better, right? Um, yeah. I I don't I don't know. I'm working I'm working on disentangling myself from some of these uh, from some of the existing places that I've been giving, so that I can give it all to Omakase. That's still it's really awesome. Yeah. Yes, cool. it's really awesome. My next pick is kind of just a fun pick. It's uh, Hacker Factor's Gender Guesser, 
you put in a writing sample and then it guesses the gender of the person who wrote it. <laughs> and uh, I'm very pleased because um, the verdict is that I'm male, which is going to be very, very, very good for my, um, uh, for my career. Uh, but my third pick is a book called Multipliers by Liz Wiseman and Greg McKeon. I'm not quite sure about the uh, pronunciation of that. It's a business book. It's not a technology book. It talks about different types of leadership. It talks about how some people can come into an organization and everyone gives more, becomes smarter, is feeling engaged. They And as a team, team, they achieve more. And then other leaders will come in and hire a bunch of smart people and then um, not let them do their job in many ways. And so this book talks about a lot of the patterns that they've seen um, as they've looked at a lot of these different types of leaders and very specific about the behaviors that they have and how you might be able to emulate the better leaders and uh, get rid of some bad habits. So it's been a very, very interesting, very, very interesting book. If I keep going, Go am I going to keep going? Explosion. Keep going, yeah. All right. Do it. All right. How to bake a potato dot com. <laughs> if if you've ever wondered how to get the perfect baked potato and you've failed at it, now you no longer have to fail because how to bake a potato dot com tells you how, and it's really really easy. And then I have Git Hug, which is a, a project that helps you understand how to how to use Git, which I thought was really cute. Let's see, one more King James programming. It's a Tumblr. It's uh, it it combines. It's a oh dear, what's it called? Markov chain. Yeah, yeah, so we, yeah. Does, we used to, we used to call those travesty generators. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's. It's brilliant. So uh, it combines uh, Markov chains from the Bible and uh, um, very well-respected programming literature, and it's pretty pretty funny. That's hilarious. I, th- I think it's structure and interpretation of computer programs. The uh, Helen Abelson yes. MIT intro book. That's awesome. Yes, I think so. Okay, that's all I've got today. So awesome. Awesome. James. Yeah, I, I- it, 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 I, I'm going to jump in. I have one really quick pick. This is all I'm doing this week. Okay. And that's in, and that's in response to how to bake a potato. It's baconmethod.com. Bacon method? Is, <laughs> yes. This is how to make perfect bacon by baking it in the oven. And I believe the person uh, behind this site, yeah, it's Dan Benjamin. So, <laughs> Is it Dan Benjamin? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Dan Benjamin, Benjamin telling the world how to make perfect bacon. So I'm done. That's awesome. James, do you have any picks? Yeah, in the spirit of what we're going to miss from Katrina, she always posts these ridiculously practical picks, you know, like uh, the, you know, a a while back it was the uh, how to make eye contact, you know, what's the right amount of eye contact, and how to bake a potato, and um, way, way back, a long time ago, she had a cooking one, that was about how to tell if a pan is the right heat when you're heating it up. And I watched that video, and it was, like, mind-blowing to me. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So I went in and was immediately just uh, explaining to my wife this unbelievable knowledge I gained, and it turned out she knew this all along. We'd been married for, like, you know, 15 years at the time, and she had never told me, so I was heartbroken. And my pick is also a Katrina pick, actually, because uh, she picked it several episodes ago, and I actually went and read it. 
and it was an absolutely great book. So I'm going to pick it again to encourage people to go do what I did and read it. Uh, it's a book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. Uh, and it's really great. It's about, Katrina brought it up on, on about how uh, it, it kind of tears down the passion hypothesis, like uh, follow your passion being pretty bad advice to give someone. It, it talks about that. And that's that's just one part of it, uh, which is great uh, and totally changed my mind. But the rest of it is what do you do once you've come to that realization? Once you realize that that's bad advice, what do you do? Uh, it touches on many areas, you know, from, you know, goal selecting, mission statement, marketing, etc. It touches on all of that. And uh, some of it is like a lot of really great concepts or just maybe even just great ways to think about these things uh, that make them easier to just stuff them in your head, in my opinion. A lot of good ideas, kind of, uh, that I picked up in um, Amy Hoy's 30 by 500 uh, are kind of restated in here, and I think I like the the form of them in here a little better. Just a lot of great ideas in here. Super cool book if you want to know about how to make plans and move forward and what you should be doing. It's a really great book for that. That's my only pick. Awesome. I don't have any picks this week. Uh, Steven, do you have any, any picks for us? Yeah, I've got a few that I'll rattle off real quick. So first, I checked. You guys haven't been picked, so I'm going to pick you guys. So Ruby Rogues is my first pick. Wait, can you do that? <laughs> I, <laughs> I just did it. Man, all this time. Like, we should have been bringing in somebody from the outside to pick us years ago. <laughs> uh, I feel very picked Second pick is Goodreads. All these talks are the books that you guys recommend throughout the thing, throughout all the different shows. Uh, Goodreads is an online bookshelf tracking. I think a number of you actually have accounts from stalking and seeing if you guys are on there. If anybody wants to add me, I'll give the link for the show notes. But it allows you to add your books, track progress, figure out how many books you've actually read what year and in a year and things like that. Another pick is Flux. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. And it kind of goes with an anti-pick of the blue electronic lights on all the electronics now. So Flux will actually change your monitor colors depending on the time of day. So it takes a lot of the blue out of your monitor after dark. It takes a while to get used to, but it's something I found for working in the evenings. It helps turn my brain down a little more than that bright blue light that glows in the sitting in the dark room. And then just a few other kind of hero picks is LeVar Burton with his Reading Rainbow and Jim Henson with the Muppets. So just a shout out to that era of entertainment and growing up. And then I've got one kind of selfish pick is I'm doing a, I'm starting a podcast on my own. Uh, it's going to be, it's called Functional Geekery. So I'm going to try and interview people about functional programming and how that integrates with the object-oriented and trying to cover a bunch of different topics and languages from JavaScript to Clojure to Erlang to Haskell, if I can figure out who to get on from Haskell and, and topics like that, hoping to run a gamut of a one-on-one -on -one conversation about different languages. So those are my picks. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to remind everybody we will be talking to Brian Merrick about functional programming for the object-oriented programmer next week. And go get a t-shirt. Go get a t-shirt. Booster.com slash Ruby Rogues. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Your time's running out.
Yep. We've sold, what, 65 to date? So we need another 35 to reach our goal? Yeah. Come help do that. Yep. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll wrap up the show then. Thanks for coming, Stephen. Thank you guys for having me. It was an honor. All right. We'll catch you all next week.